This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Kalina Borgavich, a senior research programmer in the Advanced Visualization Lab at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. Kalina is going to pave new territory in your mind today because when you think of the definition of an RSC, you may not think about cinematic scientific data visualizations. And that is something that she is going to tell us all about. So without further ado, welcome to RSC Stories, Kalina. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Alrighty, so let's start with who you were before you were in your current role. What got you interested in science or programming when you were growing up? So I actually got into this field by starting out in computer graphics. When I was an undergrad in college, I took a class in computer graphics, fell in love with that field, and thought that I wanted to go off into Hollywood and make movies. I kind of ended up doing that, not in Hollywood and not in the way that I thought I would. But at the time, the only thing that I knew that you, one could do with a background in graphics was either going to film in Hollywood or going into the video game industry. And since I wasn't a gamer, I thought I wanted to make movies. But what I didn't know at the time is that the world of cinematic scientific visualization was a thing that existed. <laughs> kind of as soon as I learned about that, about what the AVL Advanced Visualization Lab had been doing, I was all over it. It's even better than just going to Hollywood and making movies and, you know, exploding New York for the millionth time like you see in so many disaster movies. By doing scientific visualization, I can apply those same computer graphic skills to actually educating people, promoting science, and doing something, you know, a lot bigger and more rewarding than just making regular old movies. So that's how I got into scientific visualization. But I did have kind of a weird curvy road of getting here because right after my undergrad, for a couple of years, I actually went into industry and did something completely unrelated. I was just a regular software engineer at a medical software company. It was a weird turn and I ended up going back into computer graphics via visualization, but coming into it with kind of some of that software engineering experience, which I think did help out in the end. The weird curvy roads are definitely a common thing when you're an RSC. You're saying that you didn't have a scientific background when you were studying in college? Yeah, no, not at all. When I was a little kid, I was really interested in astronomy and thought that I wanted to be an astronomer when I grew up. So it was something that I had always been interested in, science and specifically astronomy. I do a lot of astrophysical visualization now, despite not having formal training in you know any of the sciences beyond kind of just the required courses that I had to take as an engineering student in you know physics, chemistry. I hadn't taken any more advanced science courses. So my background really is just pure programming, pure computer science. I learned a lot of the science on this job that I have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you remember a moment, or maybe it happened slowly, when you were in your industry job and you had this sort of epiphany that you could be doing that kind of work, but more towards scientific visualizations? I don't think so. Honestly, when I just saw the job posting, which somebody had forwarded to me, it was the first that I had really heard of it, and I had looked into what the AVL had done and came across a YouTube channel that showed like this amazing IMAX film or clip of it. You 
couldn't have a whole film on YouTube at the time. But I came across this clip narrated by Leonardo DiCaprio and it had like real science in it. And I was like, wow, this is what this team does. It was like so beautiful and cinematic and polished and you know, celebrity narrator, very flashy. And I was like, wow, if I could get the opportunity to do that, I would be so happy. And I did, here I am and live in the dream. Oh my gosh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, that, that's definitely awesome. So tell us a little more about your lab, the Advanced Visualization Lab. I went to the homepage and I think I had the same experience you did when you saw that video because I was just totally blown away. Thank you. Yeah, I still am blown away. So, you know, obviously my background is on the technical side, the programming, the data, the software. The other half of the team does kind of the design science communication side of things. And that is really what takes it up into the flashy, super impressive level that we do. So our team is what we call an, a renaissance team. We are about half technology programming people and half designy artsy people. And we work together with various scientists and science teams to put together these visualizations. We visualize kind of all different types of sciences. None of us are experts in all of the things that we visualize because sometimes we're creating visualizations of, you know, astrophysics. Other times we're doing climate sciences. We've done molecular biology. And obviously there's no way that one person could be an expert in all of those sciences. So we work very closely with the people that are doing that science in order to create these visualizations. So really bringing together kind of those three different skill sets, the science, the arts, and technology is really what we specialize in. And turning that into something that is easy to understand by just kind of anyone that looks at it. We create these visualizations that are accessible to all kinds of audiences, you know, kids, as well as everything ranging from complete non-experts to scientific experts as well. So let's perhaps go back in time to pre-COVID when you could go into an office and, you know, work directly with your team. Can you walk us through like a typical day in the life of what it means to be an RSC in scientific data visualization? Yeah, certainly. So there are two people that just do pure programming in the lab, myself and Stuart Levy. Kind of the, the pipeline of how things happen is we get a new data set. I like to call that new data day. It's always a really exciting day. And Stuart and I have to do a bunch of data processing, data wrangling in order to figure out how to ingest that data. Sometimes it requires entirely new software development, but more often than not, periodic increments to software that we've already developed in order to ingest this new data to be able to process it in order to get it to a state where it can work with our visualization software that we end up oftentimes creating the visualizations in a tool called Houdini, which is a visual effects tool that people in Hollywood use. And that's what we use to get that cinematic look. So it, it requires creating plugins, creating external software to that to do the data preparation, software development for things like pre-visualization, for things like camera choreography. It kind of requires a lot of different little pieces that we have to figure out how to develop. And we create tools that the designers and the team can then use to do the magic that they do to make it look good, to make it communicate well to our audiences. Let's talk about software. So other than Houdini, what are your sort of go-to tools and languages that you use? For the most part, Python and C++ are the languages that I use. Occasionally, other things as needed, but those are kind of our two primary workhorses. Houdini is kind of a you know off-the-shelf tool that we use. We have a bunch of internal software that we've developed ourselves for purposes of cinematic data visualization because there really isn't anything commercial out there that does what we want to do. 
there are kind of two categories of tools. There's scientific software, which is really good at, you know, understanding different complex scientific data formats and data types. But that type of software often visualizes data in a way that's more analytical and less presentable, you know, less cinematic. There's not really a lot of controls for design in that category of tools. And then there's the cinematic software like Houdini, which is intended to be an art tool and not really created to be able to ingest scientific data. So neither of these two categories of off-the-shelf tools really work for our purposes. So an example of one type of software that I've developed is a middleware called Whiteini that kind of worked between the scientific software called YT and Houdini. Was, I felt very clever when I came up with the name Whiteini. And that leverages YT as a data reader because it does understand a lot of these scientific data types and lets us really do the majority of our design work in Houdini. So that's an example of, you know, one of the types of software that kind of acts as a middleware to fill the gap of there not actually being a tool for cinematic scientific visualization. There's also these other internal tools that I mentioned. Stuart Levy and our group developed PartyView, which is a software that we used to pre-visualize data, which means to preview it before we do the final real visualization. These data sets that we work with are often extremely large. I'm sure you can imagine working at a supercomputing center where we're talking really, really big data sets. So if we want to take a first look at that data to get a feel for it, see what's going on in it, we use PartyView to do that. What that tool is good for is downsampling the data so that it fits into memory and can be previewed in real time. We also use that in conjunction with another piece of internal software called Virtual Director, where we can basically fly around with something like a joystick or a 3D mouse. We have a few different inputs, VR as well, and literally just fly around a data set to explore it and to record a camera move that we can then export and render cinematically. Those are some of the tools that we use and that we have developed. Wow, that's really cool. So if I understand correctly, you get raw data on this exciting data day, and then you do some data wrangling and you get it into a, probably a format that one of these sort of middlewares can digest. And then you're able to get it into Houdini. And at that point, you can kind of hand it over to designers. That's kind of an ideal case of how it would work. Of course, there's a lot of back and forth. The process does always start with the data and you know one of the programmers in the team doing that wrangling, but we never really just hand it off to the designers and call it a day. They'll always come back to us and say, hey, it would be really cool if we could have this feature because it doesn't exist in the tool that we're working with. Could you add that so that we can treat the data in a certain way? Or you know, we have to go back and reprocess the data so that it can be visualized in a way that current data structuring doesn't accommodate. So there's a lot of back and forth. It's kind of a messy pipeline, really. It kind of tends to go in the direction of data to design. Definitely starts with data, definitely ends with design. It's definitely a messy squiggle in the middle there. A lot of back and forth. Let's say that the designer finishes in Houdini. At that point, does Houdini do rendering and export it to a movie, or is there more to it than that? There is more to it than that. We often have really big data sets or render a lot of images. And sometimes we, rather than doing that image processing and rendering on our own local computers, we have a, a small cluster. Sometimes we kick that off to Blue Waters, which is our local supercomputer. I developed a pipeline called BlueRend that lets us do the bulk of our work in Houdini in our day-to-day -day processing. But once we're ready to do the final render, we can ship that off to Blue Waters and do the rendering in, in parallel really quickly across many more nodes than we have access to. So even once the designers are done, I guess it does go back to me or Stuart to do that final rendering on the supercomputer. 
And when does Leonardo DiCaprio come in? (laughs) (laughs) Long after we are done with it. Unfortunately, we do often get celebrity narrators, but I've never had the pleasure of meeting one. After we're done with our visualization piece, it goes off to the film director who then puts it all together. It still needs to have a score composed and sound effects and narration. There's still a lot of things that happen to it after we're done with the visualization in order to take what we've created and turn it into a movie. So there must be a point when you've handed off your finished video and someone else is going to take it over. Can you tell us about that point when you watch it for the first time, when it has all of the sound and kind of the the film editing? Does it feel very different or does it feel like just amazing? What what, what is that experience like? It does feel very different. It's, It's a magical experience. It feels like it just takes on a life of its own. You know, after I've released it into the world, it becomes something completely different, you know, even better than what I could have created. Oftentimes, especially if we do a project for a planetarium dome theater, I don't know if you're familiar with with that format. It's kind of like a big hemispherical dome where video is projected all around you. They often have these in planetariums. We just finished a documentary that we developed for that format. And of course, we don't have a dome to test that in. You know, we're working on a rectangular computer screen. So trying to preview that giant, immersive, huge space on a tiny little monitor, even if it's a big monitor, you know, it's tiny by comparison. It's just absolutely not the same as seeing the final product in the immersive space that it's designed for. So it's always a breathtaking moment, just seeing it for the first time once it's all put together. That does sound amazing and definitely magical. So speaking of final products and documentaries and celebrities, can you tell us about some of the documentaries that are out there now that our listeners could look up to see your work? Yeah, certainly. A lot of them are created for, you know, like museums and planetariums, like I said, but there are some available on some streaming services, so you can certainly look them up. I believe on Hulu, you can watch A Beautiful Planet. That is one that we finished a few years ago. It was an IMAX film, so it's not quite as impressive, again, watching it at home or on a laptop screen as in an IMAX theater, but it is still available for streaming. Great film, highly recommend it. We also have a few on Amazon Prime. Definitely one titled Seeing the Beginning of Time is available there. I know there are a few others, but I don't know off the top of my head which titles there are. I believe Solar Superstorms is also on Amazon Prime. I don't keep track of these things too well, but but check those out. And we can definitely create a list to provide to the listeners in the episode notes. So looking at the collaborations that you have, it's it's really a very diverse team, starting with designers, programmers, and scientists, and then handing off to filmmakers and celebrities. This is a question you may not know the answer to, but do you know how this kind of collaboration came to be and if there are others like it? There are. It's not a large number of people that do what we do, but I know the California Academy of Sciences also creates cinematic scientific visualizations. So does the American Museum of Natural History, NASA's Scientific Visualization Studio. Their work is a little bit more maybe targeted towards a scientific audience, less general and cinematic, but but sometimes it is. We do work with them collaboratively as well. But as far as how these collaborations begin, it really is different depending on the project. For A Beautiful Planet, IMAX came to us and basically just hired us to create the opening and closing shot for their documentary that they were already planning to create. But in a a case like Cadence, that was the title of a National Science Foundation grant that we received. 
we proposed to create a bunch of documentaries over several years and had complete control over them ourselves. You know, we didn't partner with IMAX or have anyone come to us. We drove what the documentaries would be. We co-produced them ourselves. And, you know, that was a very kind of different experience than having someone come to us with, with their idea of what they wanted. So it really varies project by project. Sometimes we get grants to do specific pieces of other work that scientists are already doing. And sometimes we put together our own grant proposals and it's, it's just kind of a thing that we drive ourselves. So it's different all the time. So let's talk about your group in the context of the RSC community. I feel like the kind of work that you do is fairly underrepresented. And what can we do better as a community to support RCs like yourself? I agree that the type of work that I do is definitely not the norm within this community or within any community, really. But I really do appreciate what the RSC community is already doing. Until I found out that this was a thing, I wasn't really familiar with the term research software engineer until just a year or so ago. Before that point, I felt like I never really fit into any category of people. You know, I wasn't quite a software engineer. And I wasn't quite a researcher, but somewhere in this middle ground. And I felt like I was, you know, all alone in that. I think just the community of research software engineers, even though I don't know of anyone else that's doing cinematic scientific visualization, but it's still just this community of people that are kind of in that gray area between research and science and also software engineering. So just having this community, knowing that there are other people out there and that there's this label that I can apply to myself and not just be this one-off sort of weirdo doing my own thing has been really helpful and has helped me have a sense of identity and community. So I really do appreciate that. So if a starry-eyed student watches some of your documentaries and says, oh my gosh, I'd, I'd love to do that, what advice would you give him or her in terms of what to study or what to try on their own? There are a lot of different angles that you can take to get into this field. You know, my angle was the computer science route. We have other people on the team that came from the arts, like the fine arts, and some people that came from theater. We have a few student interns that have worked with us from backgrounds all over the place, architecture, machine learning, astronomy, really whatever you're interested in. The main thing that I would recommend is kind of just keeping an open mind and trying different things. Even though I am a programmer, I am very passionate about design and about film. And it's important that this is this kind of combination of these many different fields. And even though I'm not an expert in science or design, I do know enough about pockets of both of those that I can bring those things together into my work and speak the language of the designers and the team and speak the language of the scientists. So what I would recommend is not really just focusing too much on one field of what you're doing, but stay curious and explore other things just so you have a better understanding of all that it takes to create something like this. What are some of the biggest challenges in your day-to-day -day work? Definitely the fact that every problem is completely different. It's a challenge, but it's also something that I really love about this job, right? You know, one day I'm visualizing astrophysics, the next day I'm visualizing molecular biology. And obviously those are entirely different. They have different language, they have different data formats that they work with. In order to visualize a data set like this, it's really important to actually understand some of that science. 
I can't just visualize something like solar convection, which I did, without knowing what that is, which I didn't know <laughs> before I started that project. So a big part of working with a new data set is really speaking with the scientists, understanding you know why they're doing the science, what it means, learning not just the programming and figuring out how to solve the technical problems, which is always challenging and different as well, but also needing to learn some of that science and just never really knowing enough. <laughs> I'm constantly learning for this job. Every problem requires a completely different solution, and that's both a blessing and a curse. You know, it keeps the job very fun and interesting and exciting, but it's also obviously challenging. You mentioned before that you do develop some sort of software, and you mentioned that a lot of it is sort of internal. Do you see a future where there's like an open source software community for this kind of work? Yes, definitely. A lot of the tools that I develop are internal. There are two main ones that are public facing and open source right now. Whiteeny, which I'm the primary developer of, is open source. You can check it out at whiteeny.com. We've got a fancy website for it. And also PartyView, which is the pre-visualization software that I've mentioned. Those are kind of two tools that we have put out there into the world. We do have some others that we are quite happy to put out there. One of the issues that we face is that it's not for lack of desire to release these tools, but more so that the primary output of what we create are visualizations, right? We aren't a software group. We do develop software, but that's not really the point. So when we're funded to create visualizations, a lot of these tools, we kind of add features to them as necessary for that specific project, but we don't really have the funding or the time to spend on creating them in a way that other people can come and contribute. They don't necessarily have every possible data format that people might want in order to make it usable. We just have enough time to make it usable for our purposes and we're constantly adding on to it, but we just haven't really had the time or the opportunity to open source them and to put them out there because that would require doing more development than the way that we're currently structured we have the time for. So if I'm a scientist and I have a data set that I want to visualize and maybe I can't pay for a group like yours to, you know, make it this amazing feature, do you have recommendations for tools or software that maybe are lesser known that I might take a look at for my data? Yeah, a lot of the data visualization software that is out there that's aimed at scientists is oftentimes specific to a domain, right? So if you're an astrophysicist, there might be tools that are specific to your field. Or if you are a biologist, there might be a completely different set of tools. The two off the top of my head that are kind of more multi-purpose, general purpose tools are Visit and Paraview. I don't have much experience with either of them myself, but I know there are other teams at the NCSA that do use them with great success. So I would recommend those for creating visualizations if you're just starting out. If you are interested in creating cinematic scientific visualizations, Whiteeny would be a good place to start. There's also AstroBlend, which was developed by a colleague, Jill Naiman, that uses the tool Blender rather than Houdini. Blender is an open source software that is kind of an alternative to Houdini, a little different in a lot in a lot of ways, but can still be used to create cinematic visualizations and is open source, which a lot of people like. If you are interested in learning more about cinematic visualization and diving deep into that, I actually do teach an online course together with a colleague, AJ Christensen, and that's available on Coursera. It's a free four-week online course that you can watch and learn how to do what we do at a high level. You know, in four weeks, you're not really going to learn how to do movie making at the scale that we do. But if you want to get started, I recommend that. I believe the course is called 3D Data Visualization for Science Communication. Are there any projects that you're working on now that you're 
able to share with us? Or are there conferences or events coming up that might be of interest? Certainly. We are just wrapping up a dome show titled Atlas of a Changing Earth. We expect that to be out this summer, hopefully just in time for people to be vaccinated and able to go out into their local planetariums once more. Do check it out. Possibly end of summer, I think, is what we're targeting. We're always presenting at various conferences. I think there's one coming up just in a couple of weeks. We're presenting at NVIDIA's GTC conference. We are also very active in the SIGGRAPH community, which is an ACM conference. We pretty much present there every year, or if we're not presenting a course, then we have our work featured, or try to have it featured in the Computer Animation Festival if it gets accepted. There's also the IEEE Viz community. I guess those are the main ones that we are active in and, and participating in in the near future. I have heard of a few of those. <laughs> so we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. When you aren't programming, what do you like to do? Oh, I feel like I'm always programming these days. When I am not working, I'm actually pursuing a graduate degree right now in the evenings. So I spend most of my day programming at work and then most of my nights and weekends programming for school. <laughs> but when I'm not doing that, I am just a lifelong learner. I always enjoy just learning new things. I'm always picking up new hobbies. In the last few months, I've taken a glass blowing class, a pottery class. I was just trying to learn new things. I guess learning is one of my hobbies, which is maybe why I'm so well suited for this job because I'm always having to learn more about science as part of my work, so. I think one of the attributes of a really good RC is not sort of coming in and knowing everything, but just having this interest and passion for learning like you just described. So last question. I actually read that you are an amateur Beatles historian. Is that correct? That is correct. That is a self-given title, but I am obsessed with the Beatles. Ever since the fifth grade, I go to the Beatlefest convention every year. I actually got a chance to meet Ringo Starr, the Beatles drummer, a couple years ago, and I had him sign my arm. And now I got a Ringo Starr tattoo of his signature where he actually signed it. So I am very, very obsessed with the Beatles, and I have won Beatlefest trivia competitions on the Beatles, which are like, this is where all of the crazy Beatle fans from the whole world go every year. So yes, I, I do know a lot about the Beatles. I am a uh, historian in that sense. I haven't published any books about them, but anything you want to know about the Beatles, I can tell you. Can you tell us an interesting fact that maybe most people wouldn't be aware of? Here's one. The song Layla by Eric Clapton was actually written about George Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd. After that song was written, they got divorced and she actually did marry Eric. And George Harrison and Eric Clapton still remained best friends after that. Wow, that had to be a really strong friendship. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, weird fact. Kalina, thank you so much for coming on RSC Stories today. I definitely am also looking forward to when COVID is over and I might be able to go out and actually see some of these documentaries and in the place they're intended to see them as opposed to on my tiny computer screen. I think that this kind of work is underrepresented in our community. And I definitely encourage you to be loud and outspoken and share what you're doing. I'm not sure if you're a member of the Slack, but it's just really cool and it's really important for science and it helps with understanding. So I champion everything that you're doing and I think it's totally awesome. Thanks so much. And yeah, I am on the Slack, so I should post more about this. And I look forward to chatting with the other people that are on the Slack and listening to this right now. Sounds good. Thanks so much for being on the show.
Thank you.